Let's pray once more. Our God and our Father, indeed, you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of all praise for those last words that were just read. My goodness, your grace is glorious. So we say thank you. And indeed, as we just sang, you, we want to worship you. We want you to receive glory from us. So I pray now that you would receive glory from us when it is free and easy, when the music is beautiful, when wise songs have been selected for us, when the temperature in the room is just right, when everything has gone well and we didn't get into an argument with our spouse on the way to church, and when, when everything is just so and, and, would you get glory in the hardest of times? Will you get glory when we need to carry our cross and walk in your steps, Lord Jesus? Will you get glory when we need to lose instead of win? Will you get glory from all of our lives, please? We are not sufficient for this in ourselves, but the grace for this is before us in the word. So please cause your word to come up off the page and dwell richly within us now by your spirit. Holy Spirit, please carry us along, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul can't even. He's completely lost the ability to even. We know this by the word order of the original language of chapter 6, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. In the original language, you would emphasize a word by putting it first in the sentence. Paul here, in the original language, puts the word dare first. He can't hardly even believe his own words that he's writing. You would dare go before the pagan courts to settle your disputes, church, instead of before the saints. He's slapping his forehead as he writes. Christians are never, he will go on to say, never to sue each other in the civil courts. Instead, disputes are to be handled in-house. Disputes will happen. We are not yet glorified. That's not the issue he's talking about. The issue is who and where are they settled and to whose glory. Now, this is key because he will also go on to say that if by some happenstance there is no one who can judge your dispute, then you who are defrauded should, and this will be a phrase that's going to continue to come up throughout 1 Corinthians, you should remain as you are. What's that? Defrauded. What? I mean, we're Americans. <laughs> we don't do that. We sue. Well, guess what? If Paul were living today, we'd be getting a letter too. Now, before we get into the text, a few clarifications that we should take off the table right at the outset here. Um, Paul is not talking about criminal charges. If somebody, including me or anyone else, commits an actual crime in this church, me or the other elders will be the first people to call the police. So let's make that very clear here. Paul is not telling us to hide actual crimes to protect the institution of the church. That is not what's being spoken of here. He's referring to civil lawsuits. Probably, as so often it happens today, it's probably about money and or respect. 
you know, human beings being human beings. I, I conclude this because later in verse 10, we'll get to this, but he adds thieves and greed to his list of sins there. So maybe it's a business deal gone bad. Maybe it's, you know, somebody overcharged for roofing work. Maybe it's somebody did shotting roofing work. Maybe it's an inheritance dispute. Maybe it's a dispute over property lines or water rights if you live in Wilton. Um, in any case, it's possible the person suing really has lost money. Maybe they really were defrauded by someone else in the church. Okay, so the, the second clarification is that Paul is not talking about Christians suing non-Christians. That is not unilaterally prohibited by this passage, nor by the rest of Scripture, but, but that's, another, that's for another day. But when two parties, the two parties here are saints, the offended brother must not, verse 1, go before the unrighteous, but before the saints to settle it. Or, again, if by some impossible circumstance no one can be found to adjudicate the dispute, the brother is ordered, verse 7, commanded to remain as he is, defrauded. Now, again, to account for Paul's tone here, that there's something else we need to see. Is that what, what Paul is implying throughout this passage is, um, I can't even believe that this has occurred to you Christians in the first place. Not that you're even doing it. But there's, there's something about the foolishness of God that I've already been teaching you, Paul's saying, that this, this shouldn't have even popped into your brain in the first place, let alone actually called the lawyer. So that's what we need to see today. That's what we need to see. And we, and we need to see it because there is grace in his teaching today, not only for this, this very narrow, you know, most of us are, are going to go through our lives in the church and not come to this point, you know, where you feel like I'm tempted to sue my brother, you know. But there's going to be lots of times in our lives where, we, where Jesus calls us to do the hard thing. Forgiveness. <laughs> There's few th things harder sometimes than just plain old forgiveness, biblically speaking. Um, there are times when we have to walk in Christ's steps, and what was the steps that Christ took? Christ went down before he came up. Christ became a slave before he became the enthroned king. Christ died before he was raised from the grave. So, is the Christian life hard? Yes. So truth in advertising, if you're not a Christian yet, uh, becoming a Christian, it, life may get harder before it gets better. Okay? But it does get better. Gloriously so. Um, but to get from here to there, we need grace to do it. And the grace is found here. And the grace is simply this, and it's the same for everything else in the Christian life. How do you do it? By grace, through faith. What is the grace? There is grace that Paul will say has been given to us in the past and that, in, that ensures for us grace that is coming in the future. And so we are to live today with faith in that past grace, in the foolishness of God, that the word of the cross, chapter 1, 18. And then we are to live because of that grace we are to live with a sure hope of future coming grace. And as we live between those two days, the day of the cross and the empty tomb and the day of Christ's return, as we live in faith in that day and hope in this day, it gives us grace to live today according to the commands of Christ. 
to God's glory. And there is no other way. (laughs) But this is the way, and it is possible. It is possible to do the impossible. So, Paul directs us now to our future. And there's two aspects of the future that he directs us to in this passage. The first is what will be our future. And then secondly, what will not be our future. So first, what will be our future? That we will judge the world and the angels. Now, um, a little pro tip for reading Paul. Whenever he asks this rhetorical question, do you not know? Because he does it a lot. Um, in all his letters. Whenever he does that, a little pro tip, stop and ponder it and actually answer the question, do I know this? Is what he's saying here front of mind for me? Because it should be. And chances are, I bet you the money in my pocket, that whatever follows after, do you not know? You need it and I need it just as much as the Philippians and the Colossians and the Corinthians and the Thessalonians needed it. It's timeless and it's powerful. So here Paul asks, do you not know, verse 2, that in the future we Christians will judge the world? So I'll ask you that. Did you know that? (laughs) Did you know that? In the future we will judge the world. Christ will come again, this time not to save. Time will be up and it will be time to judge. And when he does, just as God entrusted the naming of the animals and the world to Adam, so God will entrust to us the task of judging the world. My understanding of this is that as we go into the millennium, he will delegate to us determining what stays in the grave of the old world and what should remain and be transformed and go into the next. Not everything will be burned up. We don't just live, die, and then play harps in the clouds. The church now is a training ground and a test site for the life that we will lead then. We learn and we learn to and, and we display our competency to judge the world then by judging ourselves now. Because, after all, this thing here called the church is a microcosm of the world to come. This this here is the promised land of the future in seed form. The church is the only entity that will go into forever. Did you know that? This. So then Paul, verse 2 says, sarcastically, by the way, sarcasm can be biblical. And this passage is dripping with sarcasm. It's wet, the page is wet with it. Paul sarcastically asks, verse 2, if, you're going, if this is true, and it is, if you're going to judge the world, are you so incompetent then that you can't decide a case of overbilling for roof repairs? That's what he's saying. Then in verse 3, he takes our future out to its full edges. Do you not know that we will judge the angels? So again, I'll ask you, did you know that? Did you know that in the future we will judge the angels? Um, again, I, I, I take this to mean that we will judge the fallen angels um, like, a, like a holy, perfect Nuremberg trial in the future. We, the victors, will judge those who wanted us dead. God's people will judge both the earthly realms and the spiritual realms in the future. So then, if we will be delegated the judgment of even the heavenly beings, why then, why then, 
He says in verse 3 and verse 4, why then do you delegate such earthly, non-heavenly matters to some guy who only went to Stanford Law? What standing does he have with, with that which will go into eternity? But, but you see, in order to see this, you have to think with the foolishness of God according to the word of the cross and what the cross produced in God's people. You have, to, you have to see this by faith because the church doesn't always look this way. A federal courtroom looks a lot more exalted than this room. Must be apprehended by faith. Must be apprehended by faith because only the foolishness of God does, does uh, what, um, what this world needs and, and what we all long for Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 25, is displayed in the church itself, and it is stronger than men. That that civil judge, he he only has a degree from Harvard, but we, chapter 2, verse 12, we have the very spirit of God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, the very mind of God. We have that. So then, when Paul asks in verse 5, can it be that there was no one among you who can judge, say, this marital dispute? Instead, verse 6, you have to go to the courts to have it decided by unbelievers. He's, he's like, what? Because the answer is, if, again, if we have the Spirit, and we do, we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit inhabits us, the church. You remember this from from chapter uh, 3. We, we have the Spirit. It dwells among us, and therefore we have the mind of God. And, and therefore, of course, there are brothers and sisters here who are competent to adjudicate whatever the dispute is. Therefore, Paul says, when you do this, when you do go to the courts, end of verse 5, it's a shameful thing. Verse 7, it's already a defeat for you. You being plural. You, the church. Uh, when that brother steps in foot into the courthouse, when that, when that married couple steps foot into the courthouse, you've all already lost. That's what he's saying. His emphasis here isn't on the dispute itself. Disputes are going to come up. His problem is with the rest of the church that nobody stopped and said, hey, hey, hey whoa, 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 before you do that, let, let, let's do that here. Let's decide that here. No, 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 there. Let's do that here. No, no one had the cojones to say that. That's his problem. He said, you've already lost. Um, The person he's least upset with here is the person who has supposedly done the defrauding, although that's an issue too. It's the same problem as before, if you remember, when the man took his father's wife. That was bad enough, but what was even worse, and what really got Paul, the, the existence of sin does not surprise Paul in the church. The, if, if, you look, if you experience sin or you see sin in the church and you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe there's sin here. Oh, you don't understand the first thing about what's happening here. <laughs> but, but what Paul's concerned with is that there was blatant sin and no one lifted a finger about it. No one cared that, or, or cared enough to say, um, maybe that shouldn't be happening here. Can we talk about this? I don't know much, but I don't think that's it. So let's deal with this. No one said that. That's his problem. 
And so now the, 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 other, the other point that he's making here is to the person who's doing the suing, what does it profit you to gain two feet of property line and either lose your soul or maybe not your soul, but everyone else in that courtroom? Because when you go into that courtroom, you are displaying that you don't believe what all those people in that church believe. You are acting as a functional atheist, Paul is saying there. As you argue your rights, you may be right, but there's a deeper right than you being right. There's a deeper right here, and that deeper right is the glory of God, the name of Christ, the name of Christ, which, which lands on and, and sits upon the church. And so when you, when you go into the court and you're suing your brother, you're saying, uh, that ain't what we say it is. That's powerless, not powerful. So Paul's saying, if you understood the power of God in the, in the cross flowing to us through the Spirit, you, you would not live for your rights. You wouldn't even contemplate taking, taking your brother to court because you would realize that this whole thing was founded by Jesus not insisting on his own rights. He who, who deserved all glory, all honor forever and ever and ever and, and did not get it, did not get it from Eve onward. He had every right to just press his holy fiery reset button and to say, done. That would have been him exercising his rights. But what he did instead was he gave up those rights and suffered himself as a servant, as a slave to all to die for us in our place. He gave up his rights so that we might stand right before God. There is a deeper right underneath his, even his rights, and that was the glory of God in God's people, the church. Again, that's, that's not to say that's not to say that we ignore the wrong done. Paul, there's nothing here that Paul is saying like, don't worry about the defrauding. No, he's just saying, settle it within God's people. Why? Because you want to glorify the name of Christ whose name exists, uh, who, who lands upon you and sits upon you. Keep it how you got it, as solid as it came. And it's a glorious name. You now live for that name, not yourself. Now, another question would be, where does Paul get this from? And I think it is very simple. Paul is simply thinking, we are God's people. And what did God's people do in the Old Testament? There's certain, we don't have time to go into it now, but there's certain connections here between this passage in Deuteronomy 16, 18, where um, Jethro tells Moses, hey man, you're burning yourself out. You need to appoint judges for the this people and this number of people. And so they had judges that would adjudicate things to settle matters themselves. And Paul is simply thinking, there's only one olive tree, Romans 11, Romans eleven seventeen, and this people of God who are in Christ have been grafted into that one olive tree of God's people. And so we ought to act like it. That's all he's saying. In Christ, we are God's people Many have been broken off, Romans eleven nineteen. 19, but we, we have been grafted in. We are God's people, so we should act like it. Um, grafted in through one perfect Israel, Jesus, who gave up all of his rights so that he could call us brothers. 
We who were rebels, we were who were separated and far off. He gave up all of his rights to call us, to welcome us, to draw us to the Father and call us brothers. <laughs> Amazing. There's so often there's a deeper right beneath what is right. The praise of his name. So the first aspect of our future is that we will judge the world and the angels with Christ there's the, there's the future grace that we must bank on, that we must believe. And that's all because of Christ's past grace that he accomplished on the cross for us. The past grace. Where he chose to give up his rights to make us right before God to the glory of God. Well, that's the, that's the first aspect of our future. Then Paul describes what will not be our future we, what will not be our future because we are no longer the users and abusers. The second do not know comes in verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. And by unrighteous, Paul specifically means, verses 9 and 10, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Now, you might be asking, okay, but, but how does this connect to what's come before? How did we get here? Well, the, the answer is that Paul has not changed the subject from the situation before with the man who has taken his father's wife. What he sees is the same heart issue happening here as well. Um, the, wrongs, um, the wrongs are inherently at the heart level the same in both cases. In both cases, because he says in verse 8, instead of being defrauded, you wrong and defraud your brothers. And when he says this, he's talking to the person who's doing the suing. This is because Roman courts back then were inherently unrighteous. Slander, which is still a sin today, by the way, slander was regularly used. You would pay orators to slander your opponents into oblivion. Um... And you would, you would overwhelm their character and win the case um, no matter the truth. You know, whoever had the most power to get the best orators would win. Might would make right. That was the Roman court system. Now, some might at this point say, okay, but our courts today are not as bad as they were back in the days of Corinth. Some of you laugh. I wonder why that is. Um, <clears throat> and And... If you, if you say that, I, I would very respectfully ask you to get down on the floor and look for your eyeballs because they've fallen out of your head. Um, I think of the man here in California who exposed the selling of baby parts for profit, and he was the one sent to jail. Um, or the man in New York City who's being prosecuted for manslaughter after protecting people from a violent man on a subway. Um, tell me, has it ever happened in our courts that the person with the highest paid lawyer won? <laughs> just to ask the question, you, you're like, are you telling a joke? Please tell me how many people on Epstein's client list have been prosecuted. Or please tell me whether men get a fair shake in divorce and custody cases in our country. Okay, but you say, well, there's good people, even Christians in our courts, and that's totally true. We have people in the legal profession and our church. That's not the point. That's not Paul's point. Um, 
And, and we should be humbled by the, by the skill and expertise of people in the legal profession, people who have seen, you know, a judge who's, you know, or a magistrate seen like 8,000 divorce cases, and they, they know them inside and out. But the fact that they've seen 8,000 divorce cases is beside the fact, and it's actually, verse 5, to our shame, and re- represents a loss to us because our system of law de- de- descends from where? From Christianity, And so many of those, say, just to take the example of divorce cases, but there's many others, come from Christians and churches where the Bible was supposedly taught. Now, we're all on a path of learning. If you've had a divorce in the past, I'm I'm not thinking about you right now, okay? I'm on a growth path. I'm learning things, okay? Um, There's grace here. There's forgiveness here. Um. The only unforgivable sin is unbelief, <laughs> okay? So make that very clear. There's no scarlet S's in, in the church. But in so many churches, no one stands up and says to the person initiating it, don't do this, let's settle it here. So we're much more Corinthian, like I said, than we flatter ourselves to be. So, okay, so well, maybe you're asking, okay, well, how did we get from lawsuits to sexual immorality? Well, like I said, Paul is seeing the same heart condition operating in both cases because sin always grows in bunches like grapes on a cluster. You, you know sin by the company it keeps. And d- just a note here uh, for parents in what I'm about to say next, I'm trying to use appropriate euphemisms so as to protect um, young minds. Um, but back then as well as now, the more power you had, the more you could uh, freely, physically satisfy yourself on others, male or female, especially your slaves. And what Paul is saying is that it's the same heart, it's the same grabby, greedy desire that drives both sins. The same heart condition drives the first sin in that list in verse 9, as well as the greedy brother who takes his other brother to court to ream him in court. Same thing, same heart condition. And it's the same heart that would cause a brother to swindle his brother in the first place. So, but he goes on to say, the, the, the final words of this passage, the final glorious words He goes on to say, do you not know that if you are in Christ, that is no longer you? That is no longer your identity. And when he says that is not you, he means that ain't you. That is no longer your identity. Those people that I've listed there, Paul says that they will not inherit the kingdom. And Paul says, by the grace of God, that's no longer you. So live out of your identity. Live out of that that new life that's already yours in Christ. The resurrection has already begun for you. Eternal life has already begun for you. That's no longer you by the grace of God. So live that way. Be who you are in Christ. Live today according to what is not your future too. Now again, a couple of clarifications there, because this is a hard word, this this passage. He does not mean that if you've committed one of those sins once, you're damned. 
He means a life that is characterized in its trajectory by these sins. Therefore, we must be clear that he is not saying that, that you are saved by avoiding these sins either. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But while salvation is by faith alone, faith never exists alone. Apple trees, if they are alive, will produce apples. And faith, even if it is alive to the size of a mustard seed, will produce the new fruit of righteousness. That is, a, a new resistance to those old sins that wasn't there before. And that's one of the reasons why life gets harder before. Because before, you didn't have any resistance to sin. You were just floating down the river, having fun. And so life gets harder when you have to paddle upstream. But when you start to paddle upstream, that, that creates a new trajectory where you're no longer floating towards perdition, but you've now turned around. That's called repentance. And now your, your trajectory is now towards Christ. And it, what matters a great deal, what matters infinitely more than where you are on this line of perfection is where your nose is pointed. What faith in Christ does is it sets us on a new trajectory. And that trajectory, no matter where you are on it, if you're pointed towards Christ, is beautiful in God's eyes because it's produced by faith in his son. So Paul is, Paul is not saying that if you committed one of these sins once, but he is saying that if your life is characterized by one of these sins, it, it may be that you're not a true Christian and you need to examine yourself and you need to repent. So, so do that, please. <laughs> Repent. Get help. Ask. Change. Do it by faith. Do it by faith. Faith in the past grace where, where forgiveness is found, where cleansing, as he said, is found because this is not you anymore, Christian, because at the cross, three things. You were cleansed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. All of your sins, uh, the, the guilt was washed away by the blood of Christ. And by sanctified, he means that you were set aside. You were set aside to be made holy. God held you to himself. And by the resurrection of Christ, you were justified, made to stand righteous before God. How solid is this? Uh, that justification is, is, is so solid that the only way you could break it is if you could put Jesus Christ back into the grave. So what Paul is saying is, look, look to your, your past grace that came to you on the cross and believe it, and then look forward to your, what will not be your future. That, that there's no condemnation awaiting you for these things because you're not that anymore. You were washed, you were plucked out of these things and made to stand righteous before God. And all of that leads to a glorious conclusion, not a, not a conclusion of perdition and damnation, but one of glory. Huh. <sighs> We're not yet perfect, but when we have faith, faith in these two, the faith in the past grace and hope in this future grace, all that changes us now and that causes us to live in supernaturally different ways now. Sometimes it looks like three steps forward and two steps back and two steps forward and one step back and then, and then three steps back and two steps forward. But all the while, even when you're failing, you're failing forward towards Christ. And there's room for that by his grace. Paul is saying, no matter what, what is the hard thing for you? What is it? I don't need to hear it right now, but what is it? What's the hard thing for you? Is it confessing that sin? Is it, is it taking that, that bold next step and fighting that sin? Is it, 
Is it coming out of a lethargy and taking that step of obedience that you know God is asking you to take, but you've been so complacent that you don't want to take it? What, what is it for you? Is it, is, it, is it actually forgiving your dad? I, I find the fastest way for me to get blocked on Twitter is if I say to someone, you need to forgive your dad. That elicits the most ire and rage. For a lot of us, forgiveness is the hard thing because we want to hold on to that thing. We want to hold on to it and keep it like a pet because that justifies us. That, that keeps us justified in, in our other behaviors that we do. But if you would let go of that, then you will find that you can be justified not according to this little, this little petty, pet resentment that you have here, but you can be free. You can be free of the bitterness, free to a new life. Restored relationships, glorious new life now. So what is it for you? The way forward is grace by faith. Faith in what Christ did and said on the cross and and hope, faith looking into the future of the grace that is to come to us because of what he did on the cross. If you would live that way, it will create something new now in the present something new and sweet, something new and sweet, and and it will create more than anything else a new kind of brotherhood amongst us. Paul mentions the word brothers like like four times in this passage, emphasizing that that we are brothers. We are new family, as Jesus said in Mark 3, 34. He said this to his own mother, by the way. Looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Implication to his mother, you're not yet. (laughs) As we look into the future and we let that govern our behavior today, we begin to live more uh, like actual brothers and sisters in Christ and less like isolated Americans in our own silos. We begin to develop more and more of the sweetness and the flavor of heaven. And more and more, we begin, so something begins to happen here, though none of us actually can, can say, I, I did that or I did that or I, no, no, no. All the glory goes to God working by his spirit. But what happens is that there starts to be a web of relationships here. And that web of relationships has a sweetness to it that people walk in and they say, I can't put my finger on it, but I, I taste heaven here. It's like a window into, into something here I haven't felt before. I don't know if I believe everything the pastor says. Man, he gets crazy sometimes. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I, I, I fully buy this yet. I don't know, but, but I, I, I want that. I taste and see that the Lord is good here. There's nowhere else in the world that people can get this but in the church. If people do not find it in the church, they will find it nowhere. It truly is Christ or chaos out there. And either we display Christ as a brotherhood or the world will simply not find him. So back to the big principle. Living the Christian life today, especially the hard stuff, requires looking back to the cross and looking forward to our future And this is how we get freed from being governed by the the grabby desires of the old man. 
by living by grace, by grace through faith. Um, and it's that faith, that faith that makes us competent and masterful, competent and even masterful in obeying the Lord's commands to us today, even and especially the hard stuff. By grace, through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, I, I feel like the proverbial football coach who says, who scribbles all the lines on the chalkboard and says, okay, now troops, go out there and do that. It's a lot easier to say and a lot harder to do. But that's why you get all the glory for it. Because you do the heavy lifting. You do the hard things. You provide the grace. So I pray, will you so move amongst us that your grace by your spirit would would so dwell richly within us. Will you please grant us faith Will you please grant us hope that we may live lives of true, wise love one to another today. And please do this not because that makes the church run better, not not for any other reason than for the sake of your name. Whatever disputes, whatever disagreements may come into the future, Grant us to be competent by faith to handle them ourselves so that your name would not be besmirched but would be lifted up on high and people would taste of heaven here, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive the benediction. Kings and queens of the kingdom, your king, your great king of kings and lord of lords, indeed he does reign and he reigns forevermore. And one day, you will reign with him. That is the future you are destined for. So go rejoicing, confident in that. Or stay for the meeting, confident in that. Um, And uh, rejoicing in that. Amen.